Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. It's Monday, August 12th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So, you know, I've been interested in this idea of how we get better at very complex skills, right? So to what extent is it in our genes or, you know, somehow something we don't understand, which we can label as talent uh, versus the way in which we practice. So we've had people like Anders Ericsson on the show before talking about deliberate practice and all of his features. It's something that I teach at the Conservatory of Music in San Francisco, you know, how to use the neuroscience of learning and memory to help people develop more effective practice strategies. It's, it's a topic I've been really passionate about. And I, I, you might remember that um, a few years ago, we had David Epstein on the show. He wrote a book called The Sports Gene, uh, which was really interesting look at sort of what are some of the aspects of talent that we can tie to genetics that are surprising. Yeah, I think you're even underselling your interest in this. This is like beyond passion. This is obsession. This is like a huge area of influence uh, for you. And I totally remember that um, the interviews with with Erickson uh, and with David Epstein in the past. I'm curious how they're going to collide, though. That wasn't sort of the subject of Epstein's first interview. No. Um, and there's there's a part of me that kind of wants to laugh and like leaving Erickson out of this. Um, there is there was this kind of uh, debate amongst people who are interested in this and, and two science writers in particular who are both very good at their jobs, uh, Malcolm Gladwell and David Epstein. Uh, and in my head, I kind of like, you know, <laughs> watching them sort of debate uh, this notion of, you know, the 10,000 hours, which um, Malcolm Gladwell popularized in his book Outliers. And David Epstein's, hey, you know, a lot of it is written into our DNA with the sports gene. Um, I sort of like wanted to set up this kind of celebrity deathmatch debate. Uh, And I wasn't alone (laughs) in that. They actually got together and had this conversation and it spurred this book, uh, David Epstein's next book, which is what we're going to talk about in today's interview. Um, And and essentially... You know, he he and and Malcolm uh, kind of went at it and sparred, and and David realized that there's really something to this idea that, you know, not specializing too early is a key 
component of later success. So one of the things that we talked about when we discussed his book, The Sports Gene, is this finding that people who become professional, whatever it is, baseball players, hockey players, generally come from mid-sized towns, but not the big cities. And, and that's surprising because you think like if you live in one of the big cities, like you have access to all the best coaches, you have, you know, the best training facilities, etc. In moderate sized cities or mid-sized cities, you, you will have more difficult, a more difficult time finding that expertise. And in fact, when, you know, when David looked at the statistics, he found that in fact, most of these professional athletes come from these, these mid-range sized cities. And, and he's, and he speculated that that's because you first need to, you know, become good at a number of different skills before you can specialize. And so that's actually the crux now of his book, his new book called Range, uh, which is essentially why generalists are often underrated and why we should take a second look. All right. As a generalist, I'm, I'm into this. And just a heads up to our listeners, my side of the audio for this interview got corrupted. So we had to use the computer's audio. My apologies, um, hopefully this will never happen again. But I just couldn't recreate the infectious enthusiasm I had uh, in talking to David the first time. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. David Epstein, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I'm really excited about receiving any one of your books, but this book in <laughs> particular, <laughs> um, in part because you went and talked to some of my previous grad school buddies, Lindsay Richland and Nate Cornell. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I had to, uh, Nate was easy. Lindsay, I had to pester her a lot, but it was well worth it. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, we'll get to their work in a second, but Let's start out with what was the uh, impetus for you to write this book? Because um, the way you describe it in the introduction, it, it wasn't a natural follow-up to your last book, The Sports Gene, which we covered on Inquiring Minds and which I absolutely loved. Yeah, there were sort of... Oh, so so speaking of that book, The Sports Gene, a little bit of it came out of that in a way. When when that came out, I was sort of, I was invited to the this conference called the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. It was started by the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And I was invited there to debate Malcolm Gladwell, um, so-called yeah, 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. So <laughs> he's very clever. So me not wanting to get embarrassed, um, did a lot of homework and I sort of anticipated things he might, you know, we have a lot of common ground and it's on YouTube. You can see that. But anyway, I, I anticipated that he would have to argue. Well, of course he would argue that early specialization was um, paramount in developing athletes. So I went and, and looked at all their available research and saw that, in fact, the athletes who go on to become elite usually have what scientists call a sampling period, where they play a range of sports, gain a broad array of general skills, learn about their interests, learn about their abilities, and delay specialization. And so I sort of said, you know, if your hypothesis is that early specialization is the biggest advantage, it just doesn't comport with this data. And afterward, he was like, hey, you kind of got me on that. We call it the Roger versus Tiger problem because I contrasted Roger Federer's development with Tiger Woods. And, you know, we started, we became running buddies kind of and would argue about it on our own time and talk about it. And I just sort of filed it away in the back of my brain. And then I was invited by the Pat Tillman Foundation to give a talk to a small group of military veterans who had gotten scholarships from the foundation to to aid their career changes, basically. Um and I talked like a little bit, you know, a bunch about sports. And at the end, a little bit about research I'd been looking at about late specializers in, in other fields and the contributions they make. And they were coming up to me after like, 
oh gosh, it's so great to hear this and all these things. Uh, uh, two days later, one of the audience members sent me this note saying, we all talked about how relieved we were to hear you talk because we feel behind and we're changing careers. This guy was a Navy SEAL who had had ex-Navy SEAL who had undergrad degrees in geophysics and history and was at that time pursuing public administration and business degrees from Dartmouth and Harvard. And he was feeling desperately behind. And I was in the conversations I'd had with Malcolm sort of came back to my head at that point. And I said, gosh, like maybe there's a project that would be meaningful to people to to do here. So that, that was sort of the genesis of it. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the difference between Roger Federer and Tiger Woods, because it wasn't until I read your book that I knew. I mean, I didn't even know the full Tiger Woods story, even though I'd read Outliers. And, you know, I certainly had this idea that, yes, he spends a lot of time in deliberate practice. Uh, yes, his dad was a great coach. But but can you just walk us through those the two different experiences that these two amazing athletes had growing up? Yeah, so Tiger Woods is kind of the epitome of specialization. He could he could walk early, and his father gave him uh, a putter when he was seven months old, and he dragged it around in his circular baby walker and started imitating the swing. Uh, he saw his father practicing when he was 10 months old, and by two, he was on national television um, showing off his driving and putting in front of an admiring Bob Hope. And from there, you know, by, by four, he was like hustling people, <laughs> basically. And, you know, you fast forward and he's famous as a teenager. And by 21, he's the best golfer in the world. And so that story of this very, very early specialized training became like the most famous development story, not only in sports, but probably in anything um, and extrapolated to a bunch of other other fields. M equally famous is Roger Federer as an athlete, but much more obscure as a story of his development where he kind of played everything you know, skateboarding, skiing, wrestling, uh, basketball, all sorts of sports. Uh, and his mother was a tennis coach and refused to coach him, uh, because he wouldn't return balls normally. And even after he started dropping sports, he continued playing badminton, basketball, soccer, long after his peers were, were totally specialized in tennis. And he obviously turned out okay. I mean, it's almost hilarious how opposite of Tiger Woods he was. Like when coaches tried to kick him up a higher level, he declined because he just liked staying after practice to talk with his friends about pro wrestling. And when he became good enough to warrant an interview with a local newspaper, the reporter asked what he would ever buy if he got you know, a hypothetical first paycheck as a tennis pro. And he said a Mercedes. And his mother was totally appalled and asked the reporter if she could hear the recording of the interview and he obliged. And it turned out Roger had said mere CDs in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not, not a Mercedes. So he, he was never sort of folk, as he said in 2006 about Tiger Woods, my story is completely different than his. And one of the things I, I wanted to examine was which one of these paths is the norm on route to the top, basically. And so what, what you found, and not to give people too much of a spoiler is that in fact many elite athletes follow the second the Federer path and you have some really nice figures in your book um, which by the way for our listeners is awesome and it's called range why generalists triumph in a specialized world um, and so you, you, you show these graphs of you know people who are pretty good uh, <laughs> tend to be specializing early but the elites tend to specialize late so tell us a little bit about the origins of those numbers yeah, and I don't mind giving a spoiler alert. It's not it's not only that some athletes follow the Roger path, it's absolutely the norm in most sports. The jury's sort of out on golf, but in most sports. And so um 
there are a number of, you know, usually what we hear is sort of, we look at elite athletes and there's like a case study. Um, and we ask like, did they practice a lot? And yes, of course they did. Nobody argues that practice isn't important. That's totally uncontroversial. Um, but studies that track athletes over the course of their development have basically ubiquitously found, you know, and these are from volleyball to, um, football, soccer, people usually can't believe it in soccer. So I wanted to highlight a couple of the studies from soccer. Uh, they all have this sampling period where they have a lot of unstructured play. They dabble in different kinds of physical activities. Even once they start sort of homing in on a sport, they have more, um, movement diversity. Like they basically play street balls, more types of like lightly structured kid driven games and things like that. And it's nothing like what we think from the 10,000 hour rule. And that continues to show up in like every sport that's examined, hockey and baseball. But we never hear these stories, right? Like Tom Brady is the most famous football player ever. And nobody even knows that he was drafted into baseball before football. I didn't even know that until I was looking at these, these studies, which is kind of crazy. And I think it testifies to the fact that we don't, like we aren't tantalized by, by the normal path to success the way that we are by the tiger path. Yeah. And, you know, we have, there are a lot of people who have interests in, in kind of perpetuating this notion that specializing early matters, right? I mean, like virtually the entire industry of competitive sports um, where, you know, people pay more and more money for, you know, more specialized coaching. And, and even to a large extent, this whole notion of deliberate practice, where one of the key features is having a coach that really knows what they're doing, give you instruction and immediate feedback. That's right. That's right. And so you're right on all accounts there. So the, the first one is that there is an entire early specialization industrial complex that has sprung up. It's better in some other countries where they organize their sports development, where the youth coaches understand that they are part of the development pipeline. Whereas in the US, there is no sort of overarching structure. So if you coach eight-year-olds, you know your incentive is to try to win the eight-year-old championship, even if that's not the best for long-term development. Um, and so so that, you know, so a lot of the, a lot of adults have a serious financial interest in the U S in pushing early specialization for youth sports because those kids are customers for them. And so it makes sense for them to keep them from other sports. And you mentioned, sorry, you mentioned another point after that. Oh, that, um, deliberate practice sort of, oh, uh, the it's, coach it hones in on this idea of, of very good kind of expert feedback. Yeah. And, and I think there is certainly a space for that, but if you look at, for example, the French soccer development, they, they started, you know, they just won the world cup. Um, they started overhauling their development system decades ago. And now a French, a young French soccer player probably plays about half as many formal games as an American player of the same age. The coaches are restricted from talking except for 15 minute, like designated periods. And one of the guys who designed that system has this phrase. He says, there is no remote control. And what he means is don't try to micromanage them. We don't want too much feedback. So some of the the principles of the best development systems we have today uh, don't comport with that. That's really interesting. I mean, have you have you spoken to Anders Ericsson and and people who sort of uh, follow the deliberate practice practice route and and sort of argue that in fact this immediate feedback is one of the key features um, about those kinds of real world applications? Yeah. I mean, I used to talk to him somewhat regularly. Um, I mean, I organized an event with him at the American College of Sports Medicine one year, um, but I found that uh, he 
doesn't seem to have any willingness to change his mind. I mean, I was a proponent of the deliberate practice framework myself until I started seeing a whole bunch of evidence that couldn't possibly, um, th- they couldn't possibly fit with it. Right. If you have like, in my opinion, when I would, when I would talk to Anders about evidence, I would say, look at this pattern, Th- your framework can't be true, you know, or look at things like when you put people on the same training program from day one, you see different growth rates, vastly different growth rates from people doing the exact same kind of practice. And he would say, well, those aren't elite athletes. And I'd say, but if your development framework isn't working for square zero and can only work for elite athletes, then you don't have a comprehensive development model. Another case, or he would say, well, some of those people weren't, must not have been motivated enough. And so in my opinion, he backed deliberate practice into a corner where it is completely unfalsifiable. And the only definition of it that I can figure out is basically practice that in retrospect did in fact make someone better, which has, is not a scientific hypothesis. So I don't really know what else to do with it at this point. Yeah, that, that's really problematic. And, and you know, I, I cringe to think of all the students who are going to be listening to this episode that I have taught and for whom I have forced to, you know, learn the principles of deliberate practice and repeat back to them, you know, repeat them back to me on tests. So let's talk. But I don't think there's anything about... wrong with that. I should say I don't think there's anything wrong with the principles of deliberate practice. It just depends how they're implemented, right? And yeah, and, so let's talk Andres... about that because I, I think that's one of your really key insights, and and it and it's not quite so far afield from the things that I teach that you know makes me totally ashamed. <laughs> no, there, um, in part because it, it brings together this whole idea of desirable difficulty. So so yeah, so let let's yeah, tell me about sort of what what you were finding um, that does work. Well, I, I think it's it. It is important to have um, types of feedback mechanisms, for sure. I think the best way to have them in many cases is sort of automatic feedback, where you can set an environment up for someone where the environment is giving them a kind of feedback, but that you, in many cases, so I think maybe if we're we're segueing to kind of um, the learning chapter now, with apologies to, to Daniel Kahneman, I titled it Learning Fast and Slow, um, but in those cases... You actually want to be, I mean, I opened that chapter with a math teacher who is giving like too much immediate feedback, basically. And what's happening is that she's giving so much feedback to her students so quickly that they are learning how to use procedures to, to do the math problems in front of them instead of what they really want to learn, which is learning how to match strategies to types of problems. And to do that, they need to be allowed to struggle without too much feedback for a little while. And so actually, Nate um, Cornell, who you mentioned, I think, before we started recording, uh, was telling me things like, you know, some people think that the reason American high school students don't do well on international tests is because they're doing too well in class, because we're giving them so much instant feedback that they aren't learning in the most productive ways, basically. So I think, I, I really do think like deliberate practice is very important. It's just a question with Anders, he set up this whole framework that includes what he calls the monotonic benefits assumption, which which is embedded in is the idea that two people at the same level get the exact same amount of improvement for the same amount of practice. And that is not true in basically any study of a complex skill that I've seen. That's only true if you look at like the most simple perceptual motor skills, basically. But so it doesn't mean practice is important. I just think it's the implications of his larger model, not the problem with deliberate practice itself. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about learning fast and slow, um, and uh, and and sort of how that relates to one of the surprising findings that you talk about in your book that actually has been a tenet of um, learning and memory research for a long time, and really hasn't 
somehow, uh, much to Bob Bjork's dismay, he was one of my uh, PhD thesis advisors at UCLA, and he he coined the term with, along with his wife, desirable difficulties. Um, you know, it hasn't permeated into education as much as it should, given the mountain of research that backs it up. Yeah, that that's really that that chapter, the desirable difficulties that improve learning was pretty surprising to me because as I was going around to cognitive psychologists, they were like, oh yeah, we know all this stuff. Here's like a bajillion papers. And I'm like, how have I never heard of this stuff? You know, right. I, I was kind of surprised because it was, it seemed like it's some of the most robust results, you know, in psychology. And, and one, one time I was in, uh, you know, with, with a psychologist who studies learning, who's, who's a real expert in studying a certain type of learning. And I asked what the teacher's college, you know, down the street basically thought about his work. And he said, he didn't know anybody there. <laughs> and so it occurred to me that the people who are training teachers are totally siloed from the people who are studying learning. And that that's, that's a, that's a yeah, real except, problem. Except not, not in Bob York's case. I feel like he has had, uh, you know, he has taken, made a lot of effort uh, to reach the educational community. And for some reason, he just gets rejected and, uh, or his work does anyway, I shouldn't say he, he does. Um, and, and, you know, and that's not true across the board. I mean, certainly he's been asked to give, you know, keynote talks and so forth, but, but it's been interesting to us in the cognitive world to sort of watch, uh, the attempts that have been made from cognitive neuroscientists to get this information to educators and educators just being much more reluctant to accept it. That's super frustrating. Why do you why do you think that is? And then I want to mention like a new desirable difficulty study that just came out and is awesome. But why do you think that is? Because that's so frustrating. Like I was frustrated that I didn't even, you know, know about some of this stuff when I was a student and I just cannot yeah, why would that be? Yeah, I mean, I can only speculate and 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 my speculation is in part that that education uh and cognitive psychology for such a long time were siloed. And there was such a large amount of work that was kind of built up that to sort of change the way that people think about it, I think it has been has been hard. So educators, have, I think, in some ways have been reluctant to, you know, accept findings that, that are, are so, so different from from their own historical perspective. And also, I think it's just I think it's very hard for people to believe that performance in the moment is not a good measure of learning. That's I think that, you know, point. and that's the, one of the great tenets, right? Is that, you know, you can make uh, mistakes in the moment, as you talk about in your book, that actually show that you're learning and your performance declines in, in the moment. But learning is, is accumulation of knowledge over time. And so over time, you are a more effective learner. I think you nailed that. And in fact, that reminds me of what to me was one of the most surprising studies in range, which was that one at the Air Force Academy, where, which like you couldn't, you'd be hard pressed to recreate in, you know, any kind of purposeful experiment situation where uh, cadets come in every year and they are randomized to, they all have to take a, at least three math courses in sequence, starting with calculus one and then calculus two. And, and they are randomized to those courses and then they are re-randomized to calculus two and then they are re-randomized again the third course test is the same for every class graded by committee. So there's no room for, um, you know, boosting only your own students. And, and the study was looking for the impact of teaching. And what they found was that the teachers in calculus one, who were the best at promoting overachievement in their own course, you know, essentially good performance on the test at the end of the year, systematically undermined the performance of their students in the two follow on courses. 
which is crazy, right? So the professor who produced, I think, out of 100 professors, the sixth best, you know, most overachieving scores in Calculus 1 and got the seventh best reviews on his, on his you know, professor reviews after class from the students was dead last in his students' performance in the next two classes. And so it, it and what those researchers suggested is that the teachers who were teaching a much more narrow curriculum that, you know, basically prepped their students for the test, but that didn't connect ideas more broadly across math, helped their students do really well on that test and undermined their, their long-term development. And so that get, gets to what you're saying, that it's so deeply counterintuitive that the way to get the best performance improvement right before our eyes could somehow undermine our future development. But I think that turns out to be the case in both sports and in, and in um, you know, other endeavors. Yeah, Bob has this great term for it. He calls it the illusion of competence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's so we so we fall for it all the time. In fact, you know, a lot of my music students, or even a lot of the coaches that I've worked with as an opera singer, a lot of them will say to me that they can tell whether a student is a good student by how quickly they pick up on on you know the improvements that they're asking for. And to me, that's a huge red flag. If, if you can do that really quickly in a single coaching session, then you're just imitating. You're yeah. just mimicking. You're not actually changing your brain. That's, that's a great, um, that's a great point. And I, and I love that, <laughs> that, that domain experience. I, I, and it reminds me of a quote that Bjork had. It was something like, it was something to the effect of, effect of the, the message that teachers and students need to hear is that they should avoid interpreting current performance as learning. He said like good performance on a test during the learning process could indicate, indicate mastery, but, but teachers need to be aware that that performance will often index instead fast, but fleeting progress. I remember that part at the end. In, it will often index instead fast, but fleeting progress. I thought he said it so well. Yeah. So like one example is if you mass practice. So a lot of students wait until just before the test in order to do their studying, they cram, they pull an all nighter, they get to the test, they, you know, spit out all their knowledge. And then a week later, they've forgotten everything. <laughs> um, whereas if you space out your learning, it feels harder because every time you get back to the text, it seems like you've forgotten half of what you've forgotten, which of course you have, but that's part of learning, you know, and then, uh, but ultimately you retain it for much longer. Yeah. And, and that reminds me, one of the phrases Nate Cornell used that I liked was he said a lot of the, one of the commonality between these things like spacing and is that it makes it easy to make it hard and you want to make it harder when you're learning. So that's why that, I loved that study of spacing where Spanish vocabulary learners got words and there were two groups and group one had eight hours of intensive study on one day and group two had four hours on one day and then four hours a month later, same total training. And then they were brought back eight years later. And the group that had space practice remembered 250% more with no training um, in the interim. I mean, obviously that's a very dramatic example, um, but but I thought it was, it was pretty cool. And, and I kind of wonder if some of the impact of interleaving is, is spacing, but I don't know if we want to talk about that, but there's a, there's an awesome new interleaving study that just came out if you want to talk about interleaving at all. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. 
Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com MINDS. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com MINDS. Every minute you spend updating your company's employee data and systems is a minute that you don't spend on your core job. Thankfully, now there's Rippling. It's the first platform that combines all your HR and IT systems together. And when you combine HR and IT, magic happens. Imagine if you could hire someone and take care of all their HR needs, including payroll, health insurance, and 401k, in as little as 90 seconds. Same goes for IT. You can order their computer, create their accounts, and all the apps you use like Gmail, GitHub, and Slack, all in one unified onboarding flow. That's how easy Rippling makes running your business. It's also why Rippling won PC Mag's Editor's Choice Award and is the top-rated HR and IT software on G2 Crowd. Stop burning valuable time on admin work. Use Rippling and your HR and IT will run like a well-oiled machine. If you're looking for an easier way to supercharge your employees, go to rippling.com minds and get 20% off. And if you're a new employee, maybe tell your employer that they should use Rippling so they don't even have to go through the hours and hours and hours of onboarding that await me, at least, at the end of this month. That's rippling.com minds for 20% off. Yeah, let's talk about it. Because, I mean, you're right. I mean, so for, for our listeners who don't know, interleaving means essentially it, it, it's, it's as opposed to you can you can distinguish mass from space practice in terms of, you know, how you use time uh, to either cram information or space it out over time. Blocked versus interleaved is within a particular study period. You know, you, let's say you have two different things to study A and B. You can either study A, 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 and then B, 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 or you can study A, B, A, B, or even better, A, B, B, A, A, B, somehow randomly interleaved. Yeah, and, and I think, I'm speculating here, but I think maybe one of the commonalities between learning sports skills and, and other cognitive skills for why that works, because, you know, sports, like uh, coaches call this variable practice, basically, then they just mean interleaving. Um is that again, instead of having someone learn procedures that they can use over and over, you're forcing them to match a strategy to a problem to try to identify the structure of the problem and pick the right strategy. And so in this, this new study was a randomized controlled trial in seventh grade math classrooms where students were randomized to classes that either did block practice with math um, or did interleave practice. And they were all studying the same stuff. So it was just a question of if they got the problem type AAAA, BBBB, just like you just said. And when test time came around, the group that had interleaving uh, destroyed the block practice group, even though they'd all studied the exact same things and, and took the same test. And the effect size, randomized controlled trial, was one of the biggest I've ever seen in a study like this. I think it, I think it, the, the effect size was on the order of moving a kid from the 50th percentile to the 80th percentile. Um, you know, that's kind of shocking. <laughs> um, maybe as the, as the, the, challenge at the end of the test gets sort of more open-ended, maybe it wouldn't be that big, um, but it was pretty cool to see that anyway. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the mechanisms by which this works, uh, because I think as, as, you, as you mentioned, one idea is that you're sort of matching, you're, you're changing the way you're doing the paradigm. So if you're, if you're doing a bunch of things in a row, then you, know, you could argue you're kind of just relying on residual memory. You're, not, you're no longer 
you know, starting from scratch in terms of figuring out what strategy you're going to use to fix the particular problem because you've just done it. So you, you've gone through that work. Um, whereas if you're interleaving, then you have to kind of treat each trial as a whole new thing, uh, which of course is what you're going to be asked to do if you're a performer, uh, whether you're an athlete or a musician, when you go on stage, you know, they're not going to ask you to perform the piece five times and then just listen to the fifth one, right? You've got to do it right the first time. Same thing if you're sprinting in a, in a race. Um, so well, what else do we know about sort of how this kind of, um, these desirable difficulties, the, the slowing down the rate of learning by introducing um, difficulties in, in the learning process can help us? Well, I think the two, the two main things are um, that have sort of been implicit in what we're talking about is, is it, it like with mentioning the Spanish vocabularies, it makes information stick more, right? Because you've had to, to work to, to, to generate that information or to remember it. And so it, it gets stickier, but maybe even more important or interesting than that is, is making it more flexible, I think. Um, and so when you look at uh, ability to transfer knowledge to totally new problems, right? Like one of the studies I liked was people being trained on digital simulations of naval threats. And again, there was a group that was blocked practicing the same threat over and over, and then another kind over and over. And there was another group that never got the same scenario twice and was frustrated and felt like they weren't learning as well. And then when they were all brought back, it, it wasn't like a math test. They were seeing problems they had never seen before at all, like totally new stuff. And they didn't do that great in general, but the group that had had the all mixed up practice did a lot better. And so I think in addition to just retention, um, that that matching of the strategies of the problem build sort of more conceptual knowledge that allows you to attack problems that you have actually never seen before. And I think maybe that's the most powerful kind of knowledge that we all want. Yeah. And that's really kind of one of the most surprising kind of conclusions from your book is this idea that people who generalize are not only as good as the specialists, but they're better. Um, so I, I want to get, get to sort of how, how that conclusion sort of came about. Um, but I also want to talk about the kind of outsider effect as, as a route to get getting there. So tell us a little bit about the kind of work that you uncovered on outsider influence in, in particular domains. Yeah. So there were, the, that comes up sort of repeatedly in the book. And I should say, I, I absolutely don't mean to denigrate specialists. I think, I think we need for like healthy ecosystems in the world. I think we need specialists and generalists. It's just that I think the generalists have really been undervalued. Um, specialists, probably overvalued in many cases. And w one case is sort of one of the chapters that that talks about outsider thinking starts with a guy who was in, an organic chemist who was the VP of research and development, Eli Lilly. And I remember talking to him and he said, okay, I'm a specialist. He said, I'm an organic chemist. If it doesn't have a carbon on it, I'm technically not even qualified to work with it. And what he noticed at Lilly was that in drug development, um, they he, he and other chemists would often come up against some problem and it would be sort of solved in some random way if it was solved at all by some information that had nothing to do with anything they had ever studied in the course of work. And so with having seen that, he decided to try to like post some of Lily's hardest problems online and just make a call for outside solvers. And all the other chemists were like, you got to be kidding. You know, we're some of the well, most specialized, most well-resourced professionals in the world we're going to stick stuff up on the internet and people are going to solve it. Yeah, right. And he said, well, all right, then, you know, what's 
what's the worry? And they put problems up and solutions started rolling in kind of quickly. About a third of the problems that stumped them got solved, which is pretty crazy if you figure the kind of problems they're getting stuck on, right? They, those must be pretty difficult problems. And the more likely a problem, a problem was more likely to get solved if it drew submissions from a very diverse array of professionals, like lawyers and engineers and dentists and all that stuff, as opposed to just chemists. And this works so well that this, this guy, Alf Bingham, decided to spin it off as a completely separate company called Innocentive that would help other institutions or companies or NASA, for example, um, post problems in a way that advertised it sort of to as, as diverse an array of outsiders as possible and had this enormous success with it. So like a, a guy, you know, a, like a cell phone engineer solved a problem in six months that had stumped NASA for 30 years about the prediction of, of solar storms because they just weren't, they were stuck in thinking about it a certain way. And Innocentive worked so well that now there've been other, uh, there's a bunch of kind of imitators of that. Like one very famous one is called Kaggle that looks for outsiders to solve machine learning uh, problems. And so there's been this proliferation of actually systematic opportunities for outsiders to to come solve problems. And Alf Bingham thinks that there's more chance for that in the, than in the past because, you know, if he talks about this, this language that's used in sort of the innovation literature is explore, exploit, exploration, exploitation, exploration, meaning sort of the search for new ideas, new solutions, and exploitation, meaning um, exploiting or, or getting value out of knowledge you already have. And he felt that as uh, specialists were becoming more narrowly specialized, the exploration phase increasingly had to take place outside of their walls, basically. And I think his success with Innocentive shows that he was really onto something. One of the kind of arguments against remaining a generalist is that you never really get great at anything. Uh, so in, in your own kind of research and, and the work that you did on this book, how do people kind of skate that line between getting what they need to out of, you know, trying out a whole bunch of different uh, uh, sort of things, uh, but still being able to meaningfully contribute to a particular industry um, by getting the depth of knowledge they need in order to do so? That's a great question. And, and your sort of, I think your very astute questioning is like exposing some things that I grappled with in an imperfect way, to be quite honest. You know, because I think this, this question of specialization versus generalization is one that everyone thinks about at some point or another, or most people do. And usually we just bring our intuition to it. And my hope was to kind of bring something other than just intuition so people could have more productive discussions about it. But even so, you know, what is a specialist is a semantic issue at a certain point, right? So in the last chapter, I start looking at scientists and who from, for most of the population are kind of the epitome of specialization, but trying to show, well, even within that, how can they, can they harness the benefits of this, of, of breadth? So, you know, I think there, you know, when we look at, I think if, if a generalist and, and I don't mean a dilettante. Like, I don't mean someone who's not that interested in or good at, at anything, basically. Like, that's not good, obviously. Um, but the kind of generalists I tried to look at were people who have genuinely wide interests. And, and not only they're interested in a lot of things, but that they tend to find ways to uh, recombine those interests to be productive. So when I was looking, there's some research I cited, like, on how nationally recognized scientists tend to have many more hobbies than um, 
than typical scientists and Nobel laureates have many more hobbies still. And these things seem unrelated, but in many cases, they sort of end up influencing their thinking. So I love this quote from uh, the Spanish Nobel laureate Santiago Ramón y Cajal, who's the so-called father of modern neuroscience, where he said, this one I actually remember perfectly because I liked it so much. He said, you know, that, that the most innovative people kind of have all these different interests. And he said, to him who observes them from afar, it appears as though they are scattering and dissipating their energies, while in reality, they are channeling and strengthening them. And I kind of loved that because in some of the research I talk about in range, like we see in comic books, right? Rather than, you know, years of experience surprisingly did not predict the people who had the best performance, whose comics became the most valuable, but the number of different genres that you had, you had worked in, you know, from sci-fi to fantasy, adult crime, whatever, did predict performance. In technological innovation, if you look at patent research on millions of patents, it wasn't the deepest experts who made the biggest contributions. It was experts who started anchored in a certain area. So they did have some expertise in that area, but then spread their work across a huge number uh, of different technology classes as categorized by the U.S. uh, Patent and Trademark Office. And so they sort of had an anchor that they started with but then would roam really broadly over their industry and and recombine rather than always kind of creating new specialist knowledge, they were recombining knowledge in new ways. Um, and I just saw that pattern over and over. I didn't even cite this research in it, but I just saw some LinkedIn did their chief economist did a study of a half million members looking at the best predictors of who would become an executive. And I guess the top predictor was if they'd been at a top five MBA program, but they couldn't, they couldn't tell if that was because of the selection of the schools or the schools themselves. That's open question, but nearly as good. And the next best predictor was the number of different job functions that someone had worked across within an industry. So those people were staying in a certain industry, but just working across a huge number of functions. And so I think we can harness some of the benefits of what I refer to as range, um, even with areas of expertise by sort of roaming broadly in our interest in our industry or or across different interests and keeping an eye out for how some of those interests can inform our work basically so that's what so many of the people i focused on in the book do it's not that they were setting out to be generalists it's that they had a lot of different interests and so they happened to become generalists and their strength was in sort of recombining connecting knowledge in a way that other people weren't connecting, even if they weren't the leading specialist in some of those areas. That's a really long-winded answer, but but in in many ways, the question you asked gets to you know kind of the core of the book that I was wrestling with myself. Well, good for me. <laughs> I feel very proud of that. Then, um, and and you know, I I just want to let our listeners know too that um, in a, in a lot of ways, you did win that debate, uh, because at the very front cover of your book, there's a quote from Malcolm Gladwell, who one could argue has become a generalist and in which he says he loved your book. Well, the, the quote uh, on the, oh, sorry. I did too. The, the, oh, I, I no, really appreciate that. The, the quote on the back, he says something like that. I like for reasons he can't explain, um, you know, I make him enjoy the experience of being told that, that everything he thinks about something is wrong. And he doesn't say he is wrong, but he says he enjoys it. So, so I don't really know exactly what he, what he means, but he said he enjoyed the experience of being told that everything he thinks about something is wrong. So I I appreciated that because obviously, because he and I've had a really productive discussion since that first debate, that first time we met. And I think we've both, you know, added to each other's reading lists. And that's been, been really nice because some of the other 10,000 hour prominent book authors 
have not wanted to engage in that kind of discussion. So it hasn't been so productive. I mean, they've just been upset. Well, he's also, you know, a prolific writer on a lot of different topics, a podcaster and an avid runner. So I think he qualifies in your multiple hobby uh, category. Yeah. What prompted you? Sorry, I want to ask a question. So what prompted you to um, start a podcast? Oh, boy, that's uh, uh, well, it was a long time ago when I was actually on a press junket for a show that I had been hosting on the Oprah Winfrey Network. And someone asked me to come on a podcast. And I was like, what's a podcast? Do you have to sit in a pod? Um, (laughs) You you have such good questions. That's a great question. I wouldn't have thought of that. (laughs) Um, And I really enjoyed being on it. And I thought, oh, this is like radio, but you can listen whenever you want. Um, um, And so anyway, that's, that's how I got my start. It turns out that one of the podcasts that I was asked to be a guest on uh, then invited me to be a co-host, and I uh, honed my skills uh, through many, 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 many episodes there. And now uh, we're we're nearing our 300th episode of Inquiring Minds. So, so that's how I I honed those skills. But also in terms of having a long, uh, a, a broad range of topics that I get to cover. Um, but yours being very close to uh, my heart. So, David Epstein, thank you so much for coming back on Inquiring Minds. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much, except for asking such hard questions. You know, a few weeks later, I actually happened to be at a college reunion, and um, it turns out that no one from my year showed up, which was probably the most embarrassing thing, right? You go to your college reunion, and it's like, nobody you know. Um, but the one person that did show up was Malcolm Gladwell, um, but he was one of the few people, he went He went to the same um, undergrad college as I did, and uh, but he wasn't wearing a name tag, and there was just a part of me that really wanted to go up to him and be like, I just talked to David Epstein, but then, you know, I worried that we would just hijack the conversation and things would not go well. Yeah, I think that was probably a good call on you being like, hey, you're, I just interviewed your most strident critic. Uh, let's talk. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, this whole generalist idea versus the 10,000 hours idea, I mean, there. I feel like there's like an abstraction happening. I think one of the criticisms of of Malcolm uh, purporting this 10,000 hours idea is that it's like it re- it was reductive of some of the nuance that Anders Ericsson initially introduced into that. And I'm wondering, do you feel like the same is true of Epstein's argument around generalism? Well, I mean, I think that Epstein is not trying to say that practice doesn't matter. Uh, and so I don't think it's quite, you know, uh, that that I think I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, there are certain aspects of practice that we need to think about. But there are all also these other features that deliberate practice, as we think about it so far, um, doesn't capture. And I think that's really important. And, you know, I, I I don't know yet how to implement some of David's ideas into my own teaching. And I have to really think about that this summer, because, of course, you know, I I really talk very strongly about the role of deliberate practice in in skill development. And I think it's really important. But I think what what we're getting at is that, you know, there need to be ways in which we apply some of the aspects of, say, desirable difficulties of variability in practice uh, that you know, can lead us to closer towards this kind of intersection between becoming a generalist and specializing. And, and I think, you know, again, it's the more, the more, you know, um, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from the uh, failed dare uh, drug resistance campaign of when you and I were growing up. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. Um, But anyway, uh, you know, I, I think that that's kind of understanding how variability, how interleaving, how generalized, 
training can actually make you better at a particular skill is really important. And I, and I think that David's rightly shining a light on the fact that we have this whole area uh, about how we practice and, and how we get better that we are just not focusing on. I guess what leaves me a bit unsatisfied is this idea that there is going there is going to be a prescriptive way to practice whether it is hey this sort of focused practiced um kind of methodology or even like a generalized spirit like when I heard him talking about the French coaches being limited to what what was it like 15 minutes of directed time interacting with kids I was like that seems so prescriptive like I can't imagine when you zoom out and you say, or when you zoom in and you look at Tiger Woods and Roger Federer, these sort of incredibly recent but successful athletes, that their stories are, are going to end up sort of modeling our instructive behavior uh, as if that is the the sort of pinnacle of success in the in the field, or like why people are doing sports. And I'm wondering if there, like, if there needs to be just a little bit more messiness about this entire process. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think what you know, if we can take what what we know from sort of the desirable difficulties literature, or from this idea of, you know, we know in motor learning theory that feedback is incredibly important. But I think there is something to be said for too much immediate feedback leaves a person, you know, lear learning to or you know, developing this kind of crutch of always wondering if what they're doing is going to lead to some kind of criticism. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost like this kind of clicker training idea where, you know, if, if every time you do something wrong, your coach is correcting you at some point, uh, you're going to hesitate before you do anything. And I, and I think that's part of the key of it, right? Where like, we just have to allow a certain amount of time to go by so that we don't develop this habit of constantly judging our every move. That is, is how I can apply it most easily to say singing training or musical training where, you know, you have very careful playing, which might be technically correct, but is not at all musical. And I think there, that you can have a same analog in an athletic uh, endeavor where, you know, at some point you just have to let it rip. Right. And, and if you never practice that because every time you're being coached, you're being, you're being corrected. I mean, I think that's part of what he's saying. Yeah, I get that. And, and I hear that in some of my own kids, like sports experiences now, where they just want them to play because it exercises sort of their confidence and independence, which I think the theory is that leads to a level of, of potential creativity. Because if you're always teaching the way that uh, it should be done, uh, then you're not sort of expanding the possibilities of, of being uh, creative in terms of how uh, these kids are, are approaching things. I also think the, the design of some of these discussions where it's focused on on children developing versus adults in a much more sort of deliberate situation where they're practicing are really different contexts. And the transition between the discussion between those two different contexts is not I, I think it uh, it was is very quick. And I'm curious if if you feel the same way, because in a developmental context is one thing. I think when you're talking about you and I as as old fogies now, I would think our sort of um, uh, structure for learning is going to be very different. I mean, I, you know, I think you're right. I think that there 
there are definitely things that you need to do differently when you're teaching adults versus when you're teaching kids. Um, but there's also evidence that like, you know, some of the things that we think, like we think kids are going to pick up a motor skill much more quickly than an adult. And in fact, some of the studies have shown that that's not the case. Like in a, in a simple kind of tapping task using your hand, um, it turns out that, you know, undergraduates were actually better than, you know, the kids at it because the kids sort of didn't have the same kind of motivation and, and, you know, the adults were more motivated. So they just were able to do it correctly in fewer trials. Not, you know, not that it was like a dexterity thing, but there are, there is some evidence that, you know, motivation plays a huge role in how adults learn. Um, and it's not the same in, in kids. But I also think that, um, kids can also still develop the inner critic. I mean, I, I don't think that that's something that we need, we, we, we shouldn't worry about, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a huge literature about growth versus fixed mindset. And, you know, I see that in my musician students all the time. Uh, and even when I look back on my own training, you know, if I had had in some ways different kinds of praise or different kinds of feedback, you know, I think that I wouldn't be quite so hesitant and careful about a lot of my performances. So is this going to impact how you teach? Absolutely. And I still don't know exactly how I'm going to, you know, change my protocols in the fall. But I, you know, it, this is so exciting to me, because I feel like it opens up a whole new set of, of ways of thinking about the problem. You know, I've been teaching that course now for six or seven years, and it was starting to feel that I was like getting to the point where I, I, I was looking for new ideas. And, you know, I'm so grateful for David for writing this book, because I feel like he's just brought in, you know, a whole new sort of mindset for me and, and given me the uh, kind of okay to to th say like there are some aspects of deliberate practice that don't uh, explain how people develop talent and we and we do, or you know skill we don't have to rely on some nebulous concept of talent we can actually look at this idea of 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 the importance of generalizing so I'm excited so that's it for another episode I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign especially David Noel Charles Blyle Clark Lindgren Michael Galgool Stephen Meyer Awald Kyle Raihala Joel, Jonathan Worsley Yushi Lin Eric Clark Jordan Millar Herring Chang and Sean Johnson You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.